Welcome to Terror Talk. Before we start the show today, I wanted to give you a heads up about our Patreon community. For as little as $5 a month, you can become a patron and join our Discord community, where we watch film together and chat daily. You also have early access to our episodes and a mini-cast that we do exclusively for Patreon members. Also, check out our new website at terrortalkpodcast.com. Follow along as we build it together. Most of all, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Good morning, afternoon or evening. I don't know when. Whenever you're listening. Mm -hmm. Hello. Uh, Today on the show, we are doing the second part of our true crime psychology series on the toy box killer, David Parker Ray. Over to you, Kathy. I'm going to add the disclaimer that I added to the first episode, just because we'll go into a little bit more detail. It's great. I know a lot of people listen to our show because they enjoy the true crime stuff. But for some people, this could be triggering, you know, if you're a survivor of sexual assault or, or anything. So I just wanted to put that out there ahead of time that um, I'm going to be describing some, some of the crimes and his behaviors in graphic details. So Fair. if that doesn't sound like something you want to listen to, then this might be a time to maybe fast forward to our next episode. <laughs> no hurt feelings. No, no hurt feelings. <laughs> so last week we ended on talking about his diagnosis and, you know, we always say that an explanation is not an excuse, but uh, how maybe part of his childhood trauma had led him to becoming a sexual sadist and sociopathic and all of that. So today's episode, we're going to move into his actual crimes and the trajectory of his crimes. I'm going to talk a little bit about, I'm I'm actually going to read a sample tape that he would play to someone he abducted. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, great in the sense that I'm interested. Yeah. Not great of any of the content. No, no, No. he's pretty gross. Yeah, right. So uh, just a recap, it's believed that David Parker Ray started his killing spree somewhere in the mid-1950s. He's known to have had multiple accomplices, including some of the women he was dating and including his daughter. Mm. And we talked about that in the first episode where his daughter had actually tried to turn him in years before and the police didn't believe that she had enough information. And then a couple years go by and she gets conditioned into becoming an accomplice, which is just so like, oh my God, like this. Beyond sick. Yeah. So prior to the, their arrests, the Albuquerque, Albuquerque, <laughs> Albuquerque's, the Albuquerque Police Department had suspected Ray and his daughter in the 1995 disappearance of Jesse Ray's former girlfriend, 22-year-old Jill Troya. And then I'm going to talk about a couple of his accomplices and main victims, uh, as well as his arrest and trial. So that's what we'll be covering today. Great. You know, there was all of these suspicions, but just like I've compared him to Bundy a couple of times where I feel like he just got off so easily in some ways. Yeah. It just, I mean, often the longer term, the people who are able to exercise their psychology in a longer term way, when you go back and do this kind of forensic accounting of, you know, forensic in the way of like after the fact, you know, like looking at (laughs) everything they did, you think, well, there was a moment when someone could have said something and mm-hmm. there's a moment when someone could have said something. But I mean, that's just humanity. That's like so common. Yeah. And I think because this was primarily from the 50s through the 90s. Yeah. We look at this guy, you know, 
white male who's pretty respected by most of the people in his neighborhood, mm-hmm. no one's going to suspect that he's this disgusting. That's a comp. That's so common. Yeah. Like every time we do one of these, I, I would say like half the people that we look at. It's your guy next door. It is, is the sort of regular, very kind of, well, what we would call very super vanilla looking. Yeah. Blends into the crowd. Mm-hmm. You know, is it enjoys a lot of privilege on projection just mm-hmm. by way they the way they look and who they are just from what you surmise for them being a white male. Mm-hmm. So it's it's interesting that is so. I just have learned that over not that I didn't already know that most serial killers are white males. Yeah, but just over the course of digging into these over the right. last it's three more years, explicit. it's just so much more clear. Yeah how they got away with it for decades and decades. Yeah. It's why I like that movie Disturbia that came out a while back with Shia LaBeouf. Um, and yeah. it's the next door neighbor. who's like yeah. a white dude and, yeah. <laughs> and no one believes him. I swear to God, it's him. Like, That's no. why all the law and orders and yeah. criminal intents and all that mm-hmm. have these, you know, dudes living in their basement, you know, like yep. the silence of the lambs guy. For sure. <laughs> so um, let's see, where do we leave off? So the 19, so what he would do is he would, he would, play these videos, the, not these videos, these VHS tapes mm-hmm. or cassette tapes to someone he had abducted. And I'm going to read you one of those, but in the 1993 audio, which Ray used throughout the 90s, so again, very explicit. Hello, bitch. I'm sure you're wondering why you've been kidnapped and what's going to happen to you. That's why this tape has been made. It saves a lot of talking. It's brief, blunt, and to the point. I'm a dungeon master for a local chapter of the Church of Satan, Lucifer, or the devil to you. You have been abducted so that your body can be used during rituals and for sexual purposes for the congregation after the meetings. Our membership is pretty small, about 20 people, mixed male and female. Our meetings are pretty much what most people imagine, the way it is depicted in the movies. A hidden church, black robes, pentagrams, rituals, chanting a lot of nakedness, animal sacrifices, chicken blood, and a hell of a lot of sex afterward. The meetings get interesting and exciting, to say the least. Trying to raise the demons is important, but it is the sex that keeps the church financially afloat. The high priest likes to keep everybody fired up on sex, and for that, we like fresh meat. Every couple of months, we kidnap someone good-looking, some good-looking little bitch to use during the rituals and to be kept available for everyone to use during the orgy. Let me tell you what happens at the meetings. The orgy room is separate from the main church. It contains several couches, many mats on the floor, and a refreshment center. In the middle of the room is a large wooden table with leather straps on it. Prior to each meeting, you'll be taken to the church in a wooden box, naked, in chains, and with your eyes taped shut so you can't identify anybody. Once there, you will be strapped down on top of the table. Your arms will be chained straight out to each side, and leather straps will be buckled across your upper chest your rib cage, and your belly, so you can't move. Your legs will be spread extremely wide apart because some of our members have, a, have diversified interests in ah, which hole they want to use. There's a U-shaped cutout at the top of the table, and it allows your head to drop right down into it. Another leather strap will be put across your forehead so you can't move, allowing your mouth and throat to be available for sex. Dental jaw blocks will be installed in your mouth so that you can't bite anybody during oral sex. When your mouth is wide open, members will just shove their dicks down your throat and hump your face until they come. After the meeting is over in the church, 
everyone will move into the orgy room, take their robes off. He laughs here. Now everyone is fucking naked and they'll surround the table. You're definitely going to be the center of attention, especially at first meeting when you're the new girl. Everybody is going to want to feel you up and try you out. Anyway, the high priest will move to the bottom of the table with a large wooden box that contains the dildo, what we call the devil's dick. The tip is small, so it starts in the vagina easy, but the thing is tapered. It widens enormously at the base to about three inches, and the whole thing is pretty close to 12 inches long. It's a real pussy stretcher. Once it starts to go in, the highest priest will chant, the devil fucks, the devil fucks, the devil fucks. So he would play this. Propose that Ray was not acting alone in the abductions. Mm. The introductory tape also explained that Ray was playing a torture game and how the captors planned to continually rape the victims for at least a month. So the tape concluded with an implicit threat. Be smart and be a survivor. Don't ever scream. Don't talk without permission. Be very quiet. Be docile and obedient. And by all means, show proper respect. Have a nice day. Mm -hmm. So here's a sample tape of something he would play to one of his victims. And my understanding is he would play this after he had already had them for a week or whatever, just Mm -hmm. raping them. He would Mm -hmm. move them to the toy box. Okay. He would strap them onto that table Mm -hmm. and blindfold them Mm -hmm. and he'd play the tape. Okay. That's incredibly disturbing, disturbing and frightening and horrific. I don't think there's any yeah. other thing to say about that. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I have questions, but I feel like you're going to cover it. So um, if, yeah, they, if you maybe. don't, I will ask, yeah. I will ask I mean, later about think, like that. I think that um, before I move on to just mm-hmm. reading this out loud, we've talked about a lot of serial killers and a lot of people on this show that have done really heinous. But this by far, when I studied his case mm-hmm. and the way that he would use this torture and this fear mm-hmm. the regard- psychological. The, I mean, this is component. just one of the most, this would be the most horrendous way to it, thinking they're going to die. And, Absolutely. And, and the worst part is that many of them just live right through this. Oh God. So yeah, it's, it's like, what's, which is worse? like, what are what's you praying wor- for? Right? What are you praying for? What are you praying for in those moments for it to stop or to survive? I mean, like I can just imagine the total mind fuck that was they, happening. I think they believe that the, some of the women who died that they, are alleged because I don't think they ever found the bodies are women whose bodies just, he didn't actually murder them. They just gave out from so much of the pain. Yeah. Um, so he is to believe, uh, he is believed to have terrorized and killed many women using items such as whips, straps, sex toys, etc. It's also said that he wanted his victims to see whatever he was doing to them. So he employed different techniques and methods for inflicting pain on his victims and even made his friends rape them while he watched. And then he would put like a mirror on the ceiling. I think I talked about last week. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions is that Mm -hmm. I I understand that part of this is the psychological threat and the terror of the description and that all of that's going to happen to you. And so you've imagined all of that happening to you and that's part of the torture. Yeah. And of course my mind went to, did he execute on those threats? I think he did on a lot of them. When I was looking this up, I think he had different variations of the tapes. I don't think that was like the only one he used. Gotcha. And whether he did all of that, I'm sorry, whether he did all of that, I'm not sure. But I think a lot of it was just to get them 
Yeah. In such a paralyzed state of fear. Yeah, I can imagine that that's that's terrifying enough. And then right. and then for it to all come true, I just didn't know. Well, and this was this is actually something he said about what he did. This is another quote from him. He said it was a source of entertainment for me to create these tapes. That's why there was a disclaimer at the beginning of the tape stating that it was for adult entertainment only. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense to me just in what I've learned from you so far mm-hmm. that part of his psychopathy was to create was to find joy and pleasure from creating it, right? The anticipation yeah. of playing it, mm-hmm. all of that, just like any addiction. Sure. So it's going to be creating it. It's kind of like, f- it, it's 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 deciding on what drug. It's figuring out how you're going to get the drug. It's executing the- It's like, it's like the, heating the proverbial spoon. That's right. Right? Yeah, yeah. totally. And, and um, that's, you know, we talked about his sadism in the last mm-hmm. episode. And so, yeah, it, I think that's a great way to describe it. An addiction where so much of it is around the preparation mm-hmm. and what it looks like when you look at the toy box, his um, trailer, he even had like a wooden coffin that he would have in there. And sometimes he would put women in it, but just imagine seeing that. Yeah. No, even it, if it, you weren't put in stage. it. Yeah. yeah he he's the setting stage. the stage of, of his play of yeah. terror, terror, the terror play kind of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So one of his number, his number one accomplice was actually his partner, his girlfriend, Cindy Hendy. So um, Hendy dropped out of school at 15. Mm. She gave birth to a son at age 16 and had two more children from two different men by her late 20s. So when her youngest hit the age of 10, she felt she could no longer raise her kids. She shipped them off to their grandparents and she was out on her own. So she relocated from Seattle to Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And Hendy was turned on to S&M by Ray. Shocker, right? So just like we see in movies like Natural Born Killers and Bonnie and Clyde and all this, they, they seem to feed off of each other. Yes. And so Cindy got an opportunity to let go of all of her inhibitions. This is a, something that a reporter, Yvette Martinez, told uh, something, uh, the show Killer Couples. She said, this, is, this was an opportunity for Hendy to just you know, let everything go. And, yeah. and Ray gave her the permission and the freedom to do that. However, just like this always plays out, Hendy would eventually turn on Ray to get a lighter sentence when they were arrested. So yeah, survival yeah. kicks in. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Right. And then all of a sudden she's, you know, Oh, I, I didn't know. And I was, you know, yes. Yeah. All that just, just fear. He forced fear me and, and survival. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So this, uh, this next information comes out of an Oxygen article online. Matt Miro was the author of this article from June 29th, 2020. Okay. And he says that regardless, with the three women who had come forward, there was enough evidence to convict the couple one uh, on more than 25 counts of kidnapping and mm-hmm. rape. So facing prosecution, Hendy agreed to cooperate by testifying against Ray. So... She had actually said that she knew of at least 14 girls that he had murdered. And this is, this is another author, again, Glatt, who was the killer couple or couples episode. So I don't believe they found any bodies, but mm. she had testified to, you know, I, I know for a fact that 14 of these girls, like there's a lot more than what you think. Mm-hmm. So added prosecutor Jim Yance, David had told her of a body that he had disposed of, disposed of, in the lake that he had learned from that, that when you put a body into the lake, even if you uh, weigh the body down, you have to eviscerate the body cavity so the air does not bring the body back up to the surface. 
but a search of the lake in Elephant Butte failed to turn up any bodies. So the lake is 23 miles long and about three or four miles wide with the depth of 90 to 100 feet in parts. So in addition to allegations of murder, investigators also learned from Hendy of another accomplice. Mm. So she's just now given all of her info out. So David confided in her that he had a friend by the name of Roy Yancey, who he uh, forced to actually kill a woman. So he watched Roy. He set him up. He said, I, I need you to do this. David actually took more of a sentence so his daughter didn't have to do as much. And I'm like, wow, how kind. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. So those were his. No, he was not benevolent. (laughs) No, he was not. Okay. Um, Yeah, let's be clear. So those were his main accomplices. Now I'm going to get into some of his main victims. It's really unknown how many he had uh, because he had zero murder convictions, despite what Hendy uh, and uh, Jesse Ray had given up um, during testimony. But there are more than 60 murders suspected, which is kind of nuts that they didn't find anybody. He strangled her and then buried her body out in the desert. So Dennis Roy Yancey aided Ray and Glenda Ray in killing Marie Parker. So Glenda Ray Mm -hmm. is David's daughter, Glenda Jesse Ray. So this is the one who had tried to turn him in a while back. So Dennis joined Jesse and David. So you can see it's almost like a Manson thing. He just started to get all of these people doing his dirty work for yeah. him. So Jesse Ray was Ray's daughter and she had aided in, uh, aided Ray in killing Marie Parker together with Yancey. And they were, she was sentenced to five years of probation for second degree kidnapping. That was the sentence that she got and And partially, uh, it was partially lowered because uh, I'll get into this later, but three tortured, and however many survived are un are, three tortured and survived are what's known. But like I keep saying, there's I'm sure many more that are unknown. The span of his crimes went from 1950 to March 22nd, 1999, mostly in New Mexico and Arizona. Mm. So we have the first two are unspecified specific dates, but we have Marie Parker, who I was just talking about, who was tortured by Ray and then fatally strangled by Yancey in 1997. And Kelly Garrett was abducted and held captive and released in 1996. So in 1999, we have two victims that escaped. And these are the two that spoke up the most. So in March, on March 19th, with Cynthia Vigil, who I'll talk about her in a moment, she was abducted and held captive and she escaped. And February 21st, Angelica Montano, who was abducted, held captive and was released. Mm. Montano, although she was kidnapped before Vigil, she spoke out after they had found Vigil escaped. And then that was the really the only reason they suspected Ray. So Vigil was uh, Ray's second victim who actually spoke up about the situation. So Angelica Montano, an Albuquerque resident, came forward after Vigil about her experience and uh, a long period of terrified silence because until Vigil spoke out, she, I think, believed she was the only victim. So a friend, one of just two people she'd revealed her ordeal to, convinced her to go to the police after news of Ray's arrest hit national headlines. Another article from Oxygen, again, this information here. So Cynthia Vigil describes her ordeal to oxygen this way. So she had been a sex worker from Albuquerque, explained to killer couples that she had gone to raise RV for a date. So once the door was shut, he took out a badge and said he was an undercover police officer. 
And she said, he told me I was under arrest and put a handcuff on my wrist. I knew something was wrong. So they drove the frightened and disoriented Jeremio 150 miles south to Elephant Butte, where they, meaning uh, he and Cindy Hendy, forced her into their home, chained her to the headboard and footboard of a bed in their living room, and clasped a collar around her neck. Cynthia Vigil, her last name, her I think her married name is Jaramillo or Jaramillo. Uh, let's see, where did I stop there? Oh, so the recording was of Ray's voice. Again, you know, cold drawl with no sympathy, spiked with the twang. It came across as sickingly giddy, she says. So true to his word, Ray and Hendy implemented their vile plan, torturing and raping her for days. Hendy as involved in the, uh, just, just as much as torture, just as much in the torture as Ray. Uh, this is, they used electric shocks on her until she passed out fed her very little. So again, it's like some of these things that you almost hear in the military, but totally. you know, uh, well, it's systematic as yes. the word I would use is that he has, he's organized from a psychological perspective. In a, he's organized in the sense that he's incredibly systematic and yeah. he has control over all of his, most of his actions. Can't right. say all, but he, yeah, that's, that's the difference. I think, in in many of the times we talk about the disorganized and the organized killer sure. like as you know in psych jargon but what it looks like is the systematic plotting and planning is part of the yeah which is why he could deal. do this for four decades that's right right agree so in the background one of these tapes played outlining their plans to torture and rape and humiliate her in excruciatingly specific detail so the recording started off with the greeting hello there bitch just like I had read earlier. Right. I just want to stop for a minute too and just emphasize how humiliation is another. So she says, I was shocked, raped, hung by the ceiling, drugged. Everything he thought of was done to me, she said. So she also said she was tasered, blindfolded, chained to a bed. She heard the click of a tape recorder and then Ray's instruction tape played. This obviously now brings attention to uh, what has been you know, minimized before. Mm -hmm. So she had been kidnapped only two days earlier by David Parker Ray. He removes the handcuffs and shackles before he leaves, but keeps her chained to the wall. Mm -hmm. So Vigil passes out from the pain, uh, which I can only imagine. I, I can't even believe she was awake for this much of it. But she manages to later escape after Ray accidentally leaves a key ring on the nightstand. So Vigil was uh, bashed on the head with a lamp by Cindy as she was unlocking her chain. So they, they get into, they end up getting into this just struggle, power struggle. Mm -hmm. So they were saying though, that it was likely, it would have been less likely if Vigil would not have escaped and just would have gone to the police. They still would have allowed this to keep going because I, I believe that Montano had said something. I think there's this core belief that someone's story is incredibly flawed and there's so many lies in the world mm -hmm. and there's this, there's this perspective of everyone's lying to me. Mm -hmm. And I think you get that when you're in the uh, justice system. You often get that in the mental health system For too, sure. depending on the populations. I know that I have been guilty in the past of thinking like, it's all a lie. Everyone lies to me. And then when, when I, 
when I was more experienced and had uh, finished my training, I realized that people lie for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. and that I actually, it, I'm okay when people lie to me now yeah, because it's, it's, it's diagnostic. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's assessment based. It's also for me in, in depth psychology, you know, it's imaginal, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's metaphor. It's story is incredibly important. It's what my dissertation is on. Or maybe it was Kelly Garrett. I'm going to talk about her briefly. And they just, they didn't believe that anything had happened. So it wasn't until this escape and they saw the site that yes. they finally then took it's just astounding to me it is astounding and it, it honestly it's in line with some of the so so we talk about eyewitness testimony being super very very flawed and i i can imagine that most most uh, investigators or police have that in their head yeah and so when they just hear a story Eventually, Vigil would find Cindy distracted enough and grabbed a nearby ice pick and slashed Hendy across the head. Ugh. She unlocked herself from the wall and ran. I mean, when I picture this, I just, it's just like a horror film. It is. So then she's, this is like Texas Chainsaw where she's like running down the street and she, imagine how distressing, like something out of Twin Peaks or something, right? She's naked. She's clearly traumatized. She's covered in blood. And more jarring, the police said, was the chain hanging from her neck held by a metal collar that hours later had to be removed with bolt cutters at a hospital. Mm-hmm. So that's how heavy it was on her neck. Right. So on March 22nd, 1999, the 911 dispatchers received a series of calls reporting a woman who was frantically trying to stop cars on the street asking for help. This is all in Elephant Butte uh, Mm -hmm. in New Mexico. So what I'm hearing and what you're talking about right now is that there's just that core belief, probably, Mm -hmm. that like when people just tell you a story, you don't believe them. Mm -hmm. And that serves the justice system most of the time. Mm -hmm. But it also creates a situation where victims are not believed. Yeah, the victims end up being the one. and And this is the work that I do all the time when I go into court is I see the victims are the ones that have to hold the burden of proof. Yes. And the ones that are being questioned, mm-hmm. which is incredibly problematic. So Kelly Garrett, who I'm going to talk, she'll be the, the last victim that I talk about. She was the one who was disbelieved. So Jesse, who's Ray's daughter, met Kelly Garrett at the Blue Water Saloon on July 24th, 1996. So Kelly was there to drink and unwind after an argument with her husband. She sets her sights on getting Kelly home to her and her dad, or Jesse sets her sights on getting Kelly home. After drugging her drink called her dad to pick them up from the bar. Once inside his vehicle, Jesse and Ray clamped a metal dog collar around Kelly's neck, transported her back to Bass Road. So Ray tortured Kelly for four days while his daughter watched. What a wonderful family event. Like, no. the, like the other women, she was drugged, raped, subjected to electric shock, and bound using a variety of gruesome methods. On day four, Ray drives Garrett to an isolated spot in the nearby desert, slits her throat, after seeing blood gushing, he walks away thinking she's dead. Yeah. Right. Anybody so, would. And so now it, it kind of gives us proof that he has, has killed people that he doesn't just drug them and leave them. Right. Mm-hmm. But she survived. She tells her story to her husband who doesn't believe her. Wow. <laughs> Can you imagine? I'd be like, bitch, get out. <laughs> I just want to know what, what's happening in their relationship for that. Right. Like you, know? you come home and you're no, you're, you were cheating on me. Yes. I, I, and then I slipped my throat. Yeah, unbelievable. So, so then Garrett goes to the police. This is why, you know, talk about sexual assault victims, like you were saying earlier, who aren't believed and they just keep stories to themselves. She goes to the police, who also dismiss the events as fanciful, thinking she was mentally deranged. 
So what year are we in right now? 90s. 96, I think. Okay. Yeah. Just just, just want to yeah. ground everybody in that. Yeah. Although... <laughs> I just we haven't made that much progress. I'm but not yes. saying that. I'm just yeah. saying like, no, let's, know. let's ground everybody in like what, what technology had right at 1996 is kind of where I, my head was going. Right. So this was, if it gives people, if it orients them, this is the year of like the OJ trial. Right. So she, uh, you know, she tells the police, they think she's mentally, mentally deranged. She files an official police report, which gets misplaced. I can't right now. I can't really. So no one takes Garrett seriously. And then when Vigil comes out with her story years later in 1999, now, okay, people are like, oh, yeah, uh, you were telling the truth. Right. Yeah, I wouldn't make something up like that. When the news about Vigil's arrest spreads, another victim, Montano, who I was talking about before, who was his, you know, first victim that we know escaped, mm -hmm. comes forward and, t and tells... Uh, tells them that she'd also been victimized by Parker, though she had reported it to the police. There had been no follow-up in the case, and again, until Vigil's escape. Yeah. So the FBI sent numerous agents to investigate Ray's property and surroundings, but no identifiable human remains could be found, though the police believed that he had murdered n numerous people. So ultimately, what Ray gets arrested for was discovering the home on Bass Road in the toy box trailer on the property. I mean, who would look at that and not assume? I mean, right. that's all you really need to see, right? right? And so obviously that evidence, along with the testimony of credible witnesses, such as Yancey, Jesse Ray, and Hendy, so his three accomplices, um, got him prosecuted because mm -hmm. I'm sure they all got lesser sentences for that. But also if Vigil had not called 9-11 moments before her escape, it's possible that they may not have believed her story. So it was an accumulation of things, but how many women had gone to, to turn him in and had been turned away and even disbelieved by their own loved ones. So the last part here is his trial and death. So during the trial, the prosecution brought forward the two identified victims, Cynthia Vigil and Kelly Garrett, as well as the mother of a deceased victim, Marie Parker. So the women testified against Ray and described the horrible tortures that they had to go through. Garrett stated that she didn't wish the death penalty on him as it would be too easy. So she wanted him to spend his entire life in prison. So Ray's trial began on March 28th, 2000, but he suffered a heart attack shortly after the jury had been selected. What a lucky bastard. Sorry. Yeah. So the judge ends up postponing the trial due to believing that Ray could be responsible for another 1996 murder in Colorado, but they didn't have a lot of evidence. So it was confusing why that they, they would suspend it for this. They make a plea bargain to plead guilty in exchange for his daughter who had been an accomplice. After being convicted of numerous offenses, Ray was sentenced to 224 years in prison. His girlfriend, Hendy, who had testified against Ray also received a 36 year sentence for the role in, in the crimes. His daughter, Jessie Ray, was also sentenced to two and a half years in prison for involvement and received an additional five years to be served on probation. In May 2002, Ray was taken to the Lee County Correctional Facility in Hobbs, New Mexico, to be questioned. However, he died of a heart attack, like I mentioned earlier, before the interrogation could take place. Yeah, take a breath. Let's take a breath. That's a lot of information very fast. They didn't know if Ray had had the toy box in his possession before 1996, but my thoughts are, who else's would it be? Like somebody else had the same truck, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know? Right. I don't know that many people who have that hanging out at their house. 
So on May 7th, shortly before during uh, before or during Ray's trial for the Colorado murder, Angelica Montano dies of a drug overdose dose, and therefore never gives the opportunity, never given the opportunity to testify in the trial. On May 23rd, the jury selection for Ray's new trial was finally done and he was charged with 12 counts of kidnapping, sexual abuse, and conspiracy. In July, the judge declares a mistrial because the jury couldn't agree on a verdict. I, I don't know how you couldn't. Not all of them were persuaded that the testifying victims had been held against their will. I mean, my God. And then in November, a retrial was scheduled, but a few days in, the judge passed, passes away. Everyone's dying. Pushing the trial once again until April the following year. And mind you, Ray's, Ray's dead. So he's finally found guilty on all 12 charges. In addition... So that's everything he did and how he died. And I guess... Uh, that's a lot. Yeah. So, I mean, to summarize, the details aren't so much important as it is. He, he attends, you know, most, he, he does attend his trial. He dies shortly after that. So he never serves his sentence. And how even members of the jury believe that women were not being held against their will with all of this information, who would stay in that trailer? Yeah. I don't know. So that's I, I would some ask good you attorneys. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, it's the argument of the attorneys. Yeah. They, I mean, they presented something that was believable enough that these women were not held against the world. That's the only thing that I can think of. Yeah. I mean, neither one of us has obviously read the transcripts, but there must have been some very uh, exceptional lawyering, I assume. I don't know. I, I think what's most astounding for me is how dragged out this was, how many people were disbelieved, fall off. Witnesses give up. Witnesses forget Vic information. Victims give up. Yeah. It gets too hard, too stressful. That's right. Too re-traumatizing. And so sometimes that will actually be the tactic of the defense. Yeah, of course, to elongate the whole thing. Yeah. So I think that because Vigil was really their only strong witness, Montano dies, not Garrett. Sorry, Garrett did get to testify. Uh, defending the behaviors or, or creating plausible other scenarios. Well, we have other women that either passed or were not part of the trial, so they couldn't speak for themselves. Mm -hmm. Kelly Garrett dies before she's really able to give her full testimony. Right. So we're going based on vigil, and my guess would be because of her past as a sex worker mm -hmm. that they use that against her. Yeah. That would be... What I assume they would usually do that. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't, but maybe with all of the other sort of, it, it does sound like they had a difficulty, a difficult time getting together enough ev concrete evidence. Well, and then with, you know, what, what usually happens too in cases that keep getting delayed is people, like you said, two people out of God knows how many people, right. You know, but so yeah. should we talk, I'm not sure what you're thinking about next, but should we talk about him and his psychology and what you, like, I know we talked about it some last time, but mm -hmm. recap that. So all of that. So rigid. Very rigid. Black and white thinking. Very abusive. Uh, judgmental. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then because of that, he was uh, a quiet kid, timid, shy. He was made fun of. Mm -hmm. Well, I know we have a, we have a, an individual who had major childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, he was sexually abused mm 
He was neglected by his parents. His father was an abusive alcoholic. His grandfather used corporal punishment and was very strict in his, like a fundamentalist Christian. Girls didn't like him. Boys didn't like him. Girls thought girls and boys both thought he was kind of a sissy, I guess they would have called it those days. Yeah, I remember from last time you talking about him being bullied and uh, judged in school as well. Like he was getting bullied and judged and victimized at home and also getting bullied, judged and victimized at school and misunderstood. I, I feel like that word comes into play a lot of times with these with these men. They they're they feel misunderstood and humiliated and as if they don't have a voice or any power over anything. And then that distorts along the way because usually the trauma is coupled with violence. Mm -hmm. And then that distorts into later in life, the way I'm going to get power and control Mm -hmm. is by violence. And then they develop whatever their, their particular kind of violence is. Yeah. I would say that this was a full trajectory to a sociopath, right? When we think of sociopathy, we know that, Obviously, that's not the diagnosis. The diagnosis is antisocial personality disorder. But he's a sociopath in the sense that this was very much nurture. And his environment created the perfect storm of, like you were saying, humiliation and feeling misunderstood and being abused. And he essentially took what happened to him and, and externalized it and played out that fantasy the rest of his life. He was exposed to violent pornography as a child or as, as like a preteen teen. So we know I talked about in the last episode, how when, when someone young is exposed to that during the midst of their sexual development, it's that, it's that, you know, paired conditioning. So hormones plus violence that becomes normalized. And obviously he didn't have anybody really nurturing him. No, telling him what healthy sexuality was. So everything that happened to him essentially became revenge. Understood. That is how it seems to play out in a very kind of general overarching, you know, when you look at the whole thing. I was having a conversation the other day with somebody about, unfortunately, the way we view mental health. I know it's changing and we've tried to go here for many years, but I think we're oftentimes unsuccessful, especially when it comes to sexual predators and sadists is we, we tend to work from a treatment model instead of a prevention model. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, people ask, well, how do, how do, uh, you know, if people are born this way or if it's like this, how do we really stop it? Well, first of all, not everyone is born this way. I believe Ray was made. And if we could have prevented this, his upbringing and, and avail yourself of it. You know, now they cover lots of preventative Mm -hmm. tests and things, but Mm -hmm. that was certainly wasn't the case then. No. During the time period of this. And again, not enough. We're working towards it. It's gotten better, but yeah. And so many factors. It wasn't like one parent. It was like every adult in his life and child, except for his sister. Well, that's, so that's, that's another thing. And that's another thing, theme that we see over and over and over again is in what we would call protective factors. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people ask me or ask the mental health community, 
why does one person suffer all this trauma and this happens to them and another person suffers all this trauma and this happens to them? In mm-hmm. other words, they're a, a, a hero or something very different. You know, one, right. one goes in a very sadistic path. One goes in a, maybe a very codependent path or something where, you know, they're actually helping people. And, and one of the things I could say to that, because there's no definitive answer that co- covers everybody, but one of the things I think we would both say is the protective factors. Nobody takes into account, like, well, this one had a grandmother that was amazing right. and came in every weekend and loved that kid to death and, like, took them out and stuff. And there's this one person in their life that gives them that mirrors them and gives them a safe place to be themselves and, and et cetera, et cetera. And that actually makes a, a massive difference into what path. They oh go. yeah. So what you're saying, and I think what we've seen very commonly in a lot of these cases, sociopathy or psychopathy is, is where there are no protective factors. That's right. Zero. Like there's, there's legitimately, we can't find anyone in their lives. No. And then it, that's right. And then just like we see with narcissists and sociopaths, the, they disassociate these, this shame and all this other stuff they're feeling onto yeah. others. And that's what he did. They acted out. Yep. So it's, it's, uh, Yeah. Definitely. No, no protective factors for this guy. And I think the only person in his life who would have been protective was his sister, Peggy. And I think he was separated from her. So he just didn't have it. He didn't have it. He didn't have it. Uh, Thank you so much for taking us through the toy box killer uh, this week and last week. So if you guys want to listen to the whole two part series that Kathy brought to you, please do that. Please go back and listen to last week's too. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Terror Talk. We very much appreciate your patronage. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. If he would have gone, if he would have had access to therapy or other resources, his life may not have gone this way. Mm-hmm. And not that I'm feeling sorry for him or making excuses, but it's just really the the conversation around we need to get more into primary prevention mm-hmm. because we tend, even in medical we we're much more treatment focused than we are prevention focused. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we all know that. Yeah. Every, every human being, if they have the luxury of being able to do so engages in medical treatment mm-hmm. at some point, even if just, if it's just physicals or x-rays or something. Yeah. And it's all, it's all treatment, not yeah. preventative. Although I will say as, as we all know in the last 10 to 15 years, again, if you're lucky enough to have health insurance is that, the ones that we end up seeing three, four, five decades of all of this. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Terror Talk. Please check out our Patreon page, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We'd love to engage with you as part of our community. Please take a moment to leave us a comment on any of our social media. Thank you so much for listening. And once again, sleep safe.